Aren't you glad we've got a God that speaks to us? He's not some stone God. He's not some God carved out of wood that cannot, as Isaiah says, has no, his eyes, but he cannot see, has ears, but he cannot hear, has a mouth, but he cannot speak. He's talking about things we've made. But we have a God that speaks, a God that hears, and a God that reaches out and touches us, and he does it out of love for us. Praise the Lord. Well, we started studying, last week I guess it was, uh, some principles of the kingdom of God. Everything in life works by principles. Everything in life works by rules, whether we recognize them or not. There are, in our society, there are unwritten rules. There are written rules, but then there are unwritten rules, that which we train our children in. They grow up, they, the, the things, I hate to tell you this, parents, but the things they learn to do, they've learned from you. And my mother used to say, don't do what I say, do what, don't do what I do, do what I say. But the problem is, we ended up doing what she did, and I'm still doing some of the things she did, not what she said. Because it'd be nice if you could draw that line, but God has made us to be imitators. That's how we grow and mature, is by imitating, by copying what's in front of us. And that's why as parents, we need to project and put in front of our children the right examples. And as any form of leadership where you're influencing people, that's how God uses us to do it. So we, so we learn even from a, as a young child that there's certain rules in our family, certain unspoken rules. And we had a, a brief time last night for sharing traditions from families and our oldest son who works on staff here and with, along with his wife. And uh, he was asked to share, I cringed because he was asked to share some of one of the traditions. And, uh, and because there's just some unwritten rules and our family has them. In church today, we, you know, he's this church, wherever we go, and our society has them. And, and they're ingrained in us whether we are conscious of them or not. And because they're ingrained in us, we tend to operate by them Again, whether we're conscious of doing it or not. So it's important to step back and look at those rules because they're governing how we function. And, and what we began to look at last week is that God has rules. God has, has principles by which His kingdom operates. And so those principles were operative in, in the Garden of Eden when God created all of this and He created Eden as a place of blessing. We've looked at that before. We talked about paradise that God created and then paradise that was lost and how God's regained that paradise for us. And, 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 but in that paradise, in that, there were rules and, and, uh, and they were, there, God operates by certain principles. And then we saw that Satan came in in chapter 3 of Genesis and we talked last week, he can't create anything. He doesn't have his own kingdom. He's created what he, all he can do because only God can create. Because to create means to take nothing and make it into something. And we saw that he can't create because the, Jesus said about him, there's no truth in him. That's right. For him to be able to create something means he's created a truth. And so, but what he can do, which all of us can do, is he's perverted what God's made. I heard this described once only Michelangelo could, 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 or, or, or Da Vinci could paint the Mona Lisa. But any monkey can mess it up. It takes the genius of Da Vinci to paint that priceless masterpiece where you don't, this is smile, you don't quite know what she's smiling about. And, and it's priceless. But any monkey could come along with a paintbrush and ruin it. Only God can create a masterpiece, and you're his masterpiece. His kingdom is his masterpiece. So it's no great tribute to Satan that he could pervert it. it just, he's just like a monkey. 
He could mess it up. He perverted it. And you want to understand that because the way he perverted it was to take the principles of that kingdom and convince God's man and woman to operate on them in reverse. So what we're talking about is the kingdom that you and I live in and operate in and are so conscious of and that has influenced us so strongly really is an upside-down kingdom. But to us, it seems normal because it's what we've grown up with. It's what everybody else, it's the rules everybody else plays by. We just all kind of assume these are part of life. They're what's normal in life. And yet when we look at the Bible, we find out they're not normal at all. They're perverted. They're perversions of the principles of God's kingdom. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says that what we are to be about is to be transformed, changed. And that word we've studied a long time ago, that word actually means in Greek to take what you really are like on the inside and to bring it to the outside so that it can be seen. So to be transformed doesn't mean to change who you are. It means to take who you really are and start acting like it and bring it to the outside. So we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And what that means is that we are to no longer, we're to learn to not think in the world's terms, in the terms of the principles that have been ingrained in us that the world operates by. Why? Because they're perversions of the true principles of the kingdom of God. Because what we've seen is once we come to Christ and we're born again, we no longer belong to that kingdom of the world. But we now belong again to the kingdom of God. But what we are basically is we are belong to the kingdom of God, but we're operating under the principles of the kingdom of the world, which are perversions of those. And then wondering why we're struggling. Wondering why things aren't working right. Wondering why God doesn't do more in my life. Because the place of paradise is over there. And although the door's been opened to us to come back in, and positionally we are back in because we're God's children, yet we're God's children operating out into the principles of the world, which are 180 degrees opposed to Him. In fact, in, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that these are imaginations, these are strongholds, these are, these are reasonings, it really means, that oppose the knowledge of God exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And we're trying to grow in our knowledge of God. We're trying to grow in our relationship with God all along thinking in the terms that the world thinks in which are opposed to the knowledge of God. So it behooves us to go find out what the principles of the world are. And it won't be shocking to find that they're just the reverse of the principles that we've been operating in. It's so important to understand this. Because it's not like God has his principles and the devil has his principles and I need to choose which ones. There's really only one real principles, set of principles that are God's. So we're operating under perversions that really aren't the truth. And when, when, when this, this veil of this life passes away and we all stand before God, we're going to find out what the real truth is. It's those principles, not these. And yet we've invested so much of our life and our time and our thinking in these principles. And so we began to look at them last week, and we're going to really head down to one primary principle. This is all to lay that foundation. We looked at the principle that the kingdom in the world system, that the success means you get to the top. And in order to get to the top, you've got to get over other people. It's the competition of, of getting to that place of success, and, 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 and that comes into the church's thinking. 
So that, that in, in, in very often in the, the mentality of people that are involved in ministry is that, that the, the only real successful to place in a church is when you're the, the, the pastor, the top dog. And so the ambition of people in ministry, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, but my goal is to get to the, the top position because then I know that I'm a success. And we find out Jesus taught the principle of the kingdom of God is just the opposite. He says, if you want to be, if you want to be the first in the kingdom of God, you've got to become a servant of all. And then he used himself as an example because he is Lord. You understand all of this cre was created by him, through him and for him. John chapter 1 says he, he, all of these things were, all this world was made by him and he came to his own and his own knew him not. They didn't recognize him. And so he's the Lord of all and he came and served as a low servant. In fact, I was thinking during praise and worship, and I may do this on, for the Christmas service, is that, that it, God takes on flesh to walk among us. And how did he take that flesh on? We saw it last night in the, the nativity scene. He became a little baby. We think, look, if this is God coming to the earth, I mean, he's going he's to come into the seat of all power, which was Rome. He's going to come and walk into the, the, the courts of Caesar in his glorious robes, in his glorious crown, in his majesty, and say, get off that throne. It belongs to me. But he didn't come that way, did he? That's the way we think, because that's the world's thinking. But he came as a helpless little baby to two parents whom the world didn't know who they were. We know who they are now, but they didn't mean anything virtually to anybody outside their family. And we ended last week by seeing that Jesus displayed this for his disciples before he left because they still didn't get it. Because in that upper room, when nobody, there's no servant there to wash their feet, and of course they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that for one another because they were vying for position. Because to wash Peter and James and John's feet means that I was less than the one that sits at his right hand. And so I can't do that. But at the end of the meal, Jesus gets up, walks around to the basin, takes out his beautiful, his outer, his outer, his ephod, his outer robe, and wraps the towel around himself and goes around and he washes their feet. And then he sits down at the end to give them the lesson. You call me Lord and Master, and I am. But if I, the Lord and Master, have washed your feet, how much should you should do that for one another? It's establishing the principle of the kingdom of God is that the one who serves at the bottom in God's kingdom is the one that God values at the top. Now, he values us all. I don't mean that he loves more, that more than another, but that is what is exalted in the kingdom of God, is serving at the bottom, serving others. In the kingdom of the world, it's a perversion of this. And what we're going to see is there's a consistent theme through this because the kingdom of God is based on loving others more than you love yourself. Because isn't that what God's done? The kingdom of this world is a perversion of that, that I've got to love myself first because if I don't love myself first, nobody else will. Yeah. It's based on self. The kingdom of God is based on 
love for God and others. Matthew chapter 18, turn there with me. We'll move on to the second principle. It's really a continuation of this. And I didn't plan to go through these in this much detail. I planned to best listen, list them to you. But as I've gotten in them, there's so much in them it's, it, because there's a fundamental thing that I want you to see in this. Matthew chapter 18. All right. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, they're still issue on the, stuck on this issue. They're trying to find out who the greatest is. Then Jesus called a little child to them and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop there. That's an astounding statement. Unless you become converted and become like one of these little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're talking about two different sets of rules. We're talking about the principle of the kingdom of heaven, of God, and the perversion of that, which are the principles that the world operates under. So here Jesus is talking about some principle about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying to us, in order to enter into this, you've got to be converted. That word actually means to turn. Some translations will say repent, but the word literally means to twist or turn around. You've got to change your facing, to change the way you see things. And become as a child, you notice you cannot enter. Not God likes you better. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. That's not the image that the world operates under. I just remember growing up as a child, I couldn't wait to be an adult because all I saw was the privileges adults had. I didn't recognize as a child that there are responsibilities that go with those privileges. And, and some of us are still struggling with that. We want the privilege, but not the responsibility. And so... So, but the kingdom of God, so in the world system, and this is the world, we're going to talk about the world's principle, the perversion of that right now, is that growing up means we become more sophisticated. Growing up means we act like adults and not like children. And I'll talk in a few minutes about, there's a difference between being childlike and childish. There's a difference between being childlike which is what Jesus is talking about, and childish, which I'll show you Paul refers to in another place. So Jesus is saying, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become childlike. The world says that in order to succeed, in order to grow up, you must become more sophisticated. Now that means something slightly different to each one of us, depending on what you grew up in. Well, I want to talk about that for a minute. What we mean, what we look at, what we're, see, because what you're, what you're seeing as a goal in life is what you're aspiring to, what you're trying to reach up to. And in many cases, we're trying, we, see, we do this in church all the time. We come in here, and there's nothing wrong with being dressed up and respectable. I, you know, it's, 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 I was telling people this week, 
I would, I've worn a tie to school or to work ever since I was in 10th grade, 11th grade. It's just part of the way I was raised. So I'm comfortable wearing a tie. For some of you, it's awkward to wear a tie. So sophisticated to me and sophisticated to you may not mean the same thing. But we're going to talk about what that, what that does mean, what, how the commonality between the thing is, what, what, those, what it means. But, but, but unless we understand this, the world's pressure on us is that in order to be, to be mature and to grow up, we, be, we begin to act a certain way, which is very different from what God says the kingdom of God is to be like. And we say, well, how, what harm is it? I'm going to show you what the harm is. But let's talk for a minute about wh- what this means, what it means to be sophisticated in, in, our, in the world's way of looking things. First of all, what is really behind it is we want other people to be impressed with us. We want other people to look at us. And, and there's nothing wrong with people ha- wanting people to look at you and think well of you. But there's a difference between people thinking well of you and being impressed with you. So we're brought up to measure each other by, you know, how we dress and how we talk and our education level and all kinds. And I was raised in a household, and I've shared this with you before, and it's different than what many of you were raised in, where education was it. That was the measure of, of, your, of, of your value. And so one of the things you first got to find out about somebody in a conversation with them is where they went to school. And, you know, if they went to, a, you know, an Ivy League school or something like that, you put them in another category. If they didn't, you put them in a different category. If they didn't go to college, you put them in another category. And this was a way of thinking that was ingrained in me that I've had to work at to overcome because it creates some very nasty attitudes like arrogance and pride and looking down at people. I didn't know that were in me and then when I began to see them come out, I'm saying, Lord, where did those come from? And I began to look back and realize these were rules. Weren't, weren't, they weren't laid out in any written form, but these were attitudes that were in our household that became ingrained in us. You know, the attitudes of the people that you are around are so important. Proverbs talks a lot about who young men should and should not hang out with. Why? Because we pick up attitudes of the people that are around us. We pick up these unwritten rules. Oh, it's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. In fact, at some point I'll get into what the Bible in the New Testament calls sin. You'll be shocked to find out it's not so much what you do or don't do. It's the violation of your conscience. Which is why Paul talks about how he governed himself no matter what his freedoms were, so that he wouldn't encourage someone to violate their conscience because if he did, he was encouraging them to sin. Well, we won't talk about that this morning. That would be an uncomfortable subject. Where was I before we, you guys interrupted me <laughs> with that? Oh, okay, unwritten rules. We have unwritten rules. And the people you hang out with have unwritten rules. And if you hang out with them long enough, you'll be tempted to pick up their unwritten rules and therefore their attitudes. So I grew up with this attitude, which was a terrible attitude. But that's how I picked it up. So I've had to unlearn that, and I still have to work at it at times because it gets so deeply ingrained in you. And so, so, but, but, so in our eyes, sophistication means you know, what we've accomplished. In fact, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because we'll see some of Paul's sophistication.
starting in verse 3. For we are of the circumcision who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and look at this, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now the word rejoice there actually means boast. So Paul's saying, see, you know, we boast in Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, and we put no confidence or no boast in the flesh, which refers to what I've done. And now he's going to tell you the things he used to boast in or put his confidence in. These were the things that growing up he had as his vision, as his goal to be like because they made him look important and successful in the eyes of those people that he was around. So let's look at some of these things. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. In other words, in these rules, I did it better than you did it. Circumcised of the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and concerning the law of Pharisees. In other words, of the different strata of society or parts of society that I was in, I was at the top of each one of them. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the elite tribes. I became a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which is an idiom in the Greek, which means the best of the best. So whatever I did, I excelled in it beyond everybody else. I became the Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, I was a Pharisee, which was one of the elite religious groups, but I was of the best of them. This is his resume. This is his resume. Do we know, you know, we, you carry your resume around with you? Whether it's in your pocket or in your briefcase, it's not just to present in a job application, it's what we keep in the back of our mind of who we are. Most people, if you ask them who they are, they'll give you their resume. And we walk around conscious of our resume. Well, I went to this school, or, or I, I didn't go to school, or I went to school and I didn't finish, I didn't do well. That's part of your resume. You may not broadcast that to everybody, but it's part of the image that you have of yourself. And that image that you have of yourself affects your confidence in dealing with God and with other people. But what is it? What is it based on? Is it based on these principles? If you pull your resume out today, we just decided to start displaying them up there, how would you feel? If we said, yeah, mine's pretty good. I'm going to feel good. Oh, I don't want my people to see it. Because your identity and your image are tied to the accomplishments of your life. That's your resume. That's what the world looks at to evaluate and approve you. And that's what unfortunately has crept into the church. It's not crept into the church. We brought it into the church because we were raised in it. We really had no choice because we were indoctrinated in this because society operates by this. Our families operated by this. But now that we're children of God, we have a responsibility to renew our mind and begin to think not along those principles, but along the principle of the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at what, what Jesus means. At what Jesus means by being a child. Because remember, he's got this astounding statement. Go back to Matthew 18. Got this astounding statement that unless you turn or change 
and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because you'll be operating against the rules. In fact, he's saying you can't even get in there. Matthew 18. Let's look at verse 3 again. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted or turn around and become as little children. Now notice he doesn't say to become a child, become like a child. And that's the basis of the distinction I mentioned a few minutes ago. We are to be childlike, not childish. Childlike, but not childish. Now, the next verse, he begins to give us a clue. Therefore, and I've taught you before, wherever there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. It's a connection between what he's about to say is based on what he just said. So these two statements are connected together. He's about to explain to you what he means by childlike. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now the disciples were just debating who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in the world's kingdom, the ones that's the greatest are the ones with the greatest achievements, the greatest pedigree, the, the ones who've risen to the top. And Jesus says, no, you're thinking in a perverted way. Here's how God thinks. The ones who are at the top are the ones who've learned to become childlike, not grown-up-like in the world's ideas of growth. In other words, grown up to God is what you would consider being like a child. So what does that mean here? Well, one of the keys here, he says, is to humble ourselves. Is to humble ourselves. Now, again, we've got to explain because the church by and large has perverted the idea of humility. The religious idea of humility means I don't have anything. There are holes in the bottom of my shoes. I drive a car that's rotted out with on one side's got rust and the other side the fenders are flopping around. And I'm doing this because I'm so humble and don't have anything. That's really spiritual pride. That's just operating by these principles. It's just, it's just that your, your group values those and that's what church has done. We valued poverty as some sign of holiness. It's a badge of how holy and humble I am that I don't want anything. But it makes me look more humble than you because you got a nicer car than I do. It's just the world's method of thinking. We've just put it in our terms in it. But it's the world's principle. So that's not what humility means in the Bible. Humility, I asked God, I said, What's a, give me a definition of humility. He said, it means to learn to be, to what it's like to be without me. Now, what can you do without him? Well, you know that's what the scripture says. But the real question is, what do you try to do without him? Because what you try to do without him is what you believe you can do without him. So we all know the scriptures in John 14, 15. You know, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. We know that in church. But what do we operate by? See, see we, know, we know that in church. Praise God, Jesus, I can't do anything without you. And then we get out there Monday morning. 
and, and, and I look and realize I don't have, you know, there's not, there's not enough money to pay the mortgage this week. And now I try to figure, what am I going to do? 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 I can't do anything without him, but I'm over here trying to do everything, trying to figure it out on my own. And only when I run out of what I can try to do in all my resources, do I come and cry out for help. That reflects what I'm really thinking. So humility in the Bible means learning how much I need him. It's really coming back to that place of paradise where they weren't aware of themselves at all and were just totally aware of him and how much they needed him and how much they belonged to him. But we're talking about sophistication means conducting myself in a way that I'm trying to make a favorable impression. And understand, there's nothing wrong with, you know, being nice to each other and looking nice. It's the motive behind it. And it's when it gets in the way of the kingdom of God. It's when my identity is tied to it. Turn with me oh, to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to see a story that makes very clear what this is about. Background here is the Philistines had, King David is king of Israel, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, which if you understand the background to that, represented the presence of God. At this time, God's presence was not on this Ark, but when God had Moses construct the tabernacle in the wilderness, that Ark was the centerpiece of it and the whole focus of that tabernacle. And we'll talk more about this as we get into the next year. The focus of that tabernacle was that God would dwell among His people. His actual presence would be there to dwell among His people. What had happened over the course of time is that the people stopped worshiping the God who dwelt in the tabernacle and they started worshiping the tabernacle that God dwelt in. I'm going to say that again because it's important for us to understand. They stopped worshiping the God that dwelt in the tabernacle, and they started worshiping the tabernacle that God dwelt in. I'm going to say it again, because it's a, it's a fine line, but it's so crucial. God's intention, and in the beginning they did, was that they worshiped the God who dwelt in the tabernacle. What they became proud of the fact that they were the people that had the tabernacle, so they started worshiping the tabernacle that God dwelt in, and then God stopped dwelling in it. We have to be careful because God's given us a church to come together to worship Him. And if we start worshiping the church that allows us to worship Him, His presence will leave. In fact, the reason we don't experience more of His presence is because we're too focused on the things of the church. I'm talking about the operation of the service that are here to bring in His presence. We're more conscious of that than we are desiring His presence. So we're really not a whole lot different than the Hebrews of the tabernacle. So instead of looking down our noses at them, we need to learn some things from them. And then what happened in the course of time, and the, the, ta the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And then David recaptures it. And there's some little, little sidetracks that take place. And now what's happening 
is they're in the process of bringing the, tabor, the, the Ark of the Covenant back into, into Jerusalem to place it in the temple. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. Not, the temple wasn't built yet to bring it in. Okay. And, and so there's a huge procession. Let's pick up in verse um, 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obadidim. That's where the tabernacle, that's where the ark had been dwelling. And all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obadidim to the city of David with gladness. And it, so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed six oxen and fatted sheep. Now get this. I don't know how far it was from Ob, Ob's house to, the, to, to Jerusalem, but, but they've got the ark being carried by the Levites. They've already learned they better do that because a, a man named Uzziah tried to help them and died on the spot. So they're carrying the ark of the covenant. There's a huge procession. They go six paces. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop and have church. They have sacrifices. They sacrifice six bulls. They have all of this. And that didn't take five seconds, five minutes. Get all that done. They go, one, two, three, four, five, six. And they stop and do it all over again. I have no idea how long it took to go from Odebedidim's house to Jerusalem. Oh, watch out. We're in a hurry. From going here to taking God's presence over here into Jerusalem, all right? They were more concerned, not with how soon they were going to get there. They were so in awe, so thankful that the, that, that represented the presence of God was back in their possession again. They were so excited to take it where it belonged that every six steps they'd stop and they would perform a sacrifice. They would give praise. They would worship God. Every time they take six steps, they, they were not in a hurry to get there. They were so in awe of God and His presence that they would stop and just worship Him. Sometimes our programs and our agenda are getting in the way of what God really wants. And I have to tell you that I've come to the place where I have determined before God and continue to bring this in prayer. I don't, I don't care what it is. Whatever it is that interferes with what God wants has got to go or change. Because this is about what he wants. It's not about what I want. This is not my church. I didn't shed my blood for this church. This church, which is you and me, we belong to him. And we are here to please him, to serve him, and to do his will. And whatever, 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 whatever interferes with what he wants has to go. Has to go. Whether it's my favorite tradition, your favorite tradition, it doesn't matter because it's pleasing Him that matters. It's pleasing Him that matters. And that's what's going on here. Now, here's what I want to get to because I want you to get a little bit of a feel that this is not some dry, 
cold, you know, religious walk that they're on. This is, they're not doing this because anywhere did God require this. They're doing this because King David is so excited. He is so enthralled with the idea of having this ark back where it belongs, having God's presence back where it belongs, that he, he's orchestrated this. He's planned this to just, he's so full of, and we're going to see how excited he is. Now remember who he is. This is not the little shepherd boy that's gone out with a slingshot. and He is, but he's no longer that anymore. This is not the young man that's now, that, that was then, uh, 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 was then uh, uh, installed as king of Israel. This is the king of all of Israel who lives in a gorgeous palace, who has all kinds of servants and whatever he wants done is done for him. This is that king. And notice he's not sitting on the balcony of his palace watching this happen. Pleased. Oh, isn't this wonderful what we're doing for God today? He's out leading it. He's out there in the forefront of this. Now we're talking about what's sophisticated to God and what's sophisticated to the world. The world's idea of what a king should do is he has dignity and he needs to show honor and respect. There's nothing wrong with honor. There's nothing wrong with dignity unless it gets in the way of God. And the, the world's principle is that the king sits in his palace and he watches these things done for him. Let's see what David did. Verse 13 again. So it was that when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, and he, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Verse 14. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. Stop there a second. Now, you know, back in the charismatic days, we used to do the charismatic, you know. We're dancing before the Lord like this, you know. It's the charismatic hip-hop, you know. <laughs> And everybody kind of do it together. The world, the word, the word dancing there doesn't mean this. It means to twirl around, to spin almost out of control. That's what that word means. See, we, we did this because, you know, it was, we're kind of supposed to. Some of you around, some of you don't have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> David's not doing something everybody else is doing. David cannot contain himself. The king, in all his majesty, is so in love with God. That's why God calls him a man after his own heart. So in love with God, so thrilled that this that represents his presence is being brought back. He cannot contain himself. He's got to be outwards happening. He's leading the procession and he's dancing in front of them, twirling around. There must be singing going on. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That was not the royal robe. He had taken off his royal robe, 
which represented to everyone around who he was and the position and office that he held. He took all of that off and he wore the clothes, the, the simple linen ephod that other people wore and he was twirling around and dancing before the Lord's presence as it was being brought in. You must become just like a child is the cute song to enter the kingdom of God. In order to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said, you must humble yourself. You must humble yourself. Turn and be changed in the way you think. There's more to the story. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, the prior king, looked through a window and saw the king. Now this, was hers, this is his wife. Notice where she is. His wife, Saul's daughter, is conscious of her position and of her pedigree and of her sophistication and of the dignity that goes with her office. And again, there's nothing wrong with dignity except when we're trying to be dignity and that keeps God, separates us from God. She's looking out the window at her husband, the king, acting like a child in her eyes. Let's see what's in her heart. She saw the king leaping and whirling before the Lord. See, David wasn't conscious that he was doing this in front of the people. All David was conscious is he was doing this in front of his Lord. Oh, doesn't that sound a little like Adam and Eve in the beginning? They weren't conscious of themselves to the point that it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. Oh, David is twirling around and he's not ashamed because he's doing it before his Lord out of his love for the Lord. Now we're going to run into religion. So they brought the ark of the Lord, verse 17, in and set it in a place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. This was a temporary place before the temple was built. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed and everyone to his own house. So David goes back to his house. Oh boy. And David returned to bless his household and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and you can hear the sarcasm in this, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maidservants of, and maids of his servants. He wasn't doing this with no clothes on. He just wasn't wearing the garments that represented who he was. He had taken those off because before the Lord, he's nothing. Yeah. 
that God hasn't made him to be. Uncover himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants. As one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. I love David's answer. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord, look at this, who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. In other words, I know who I am. And I've never forgotten who I am and who I was, that I only have these robes. I only live in this palace because the Lord, my God, picked me up out of a sheep shepherd's family and God himself put me of nothing I ever did to deserve it. And he's brought me over and he's put me in this place. And I will never forget that everything I have, everything I am, comes from him by his grace and by his love and by his mercy. And I will never forget it because it was before him that I dressed this way. It was before him that I acted this way. Oh, look at this. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this. And be how I will be humble in my own sight. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet, dear. <laughs> but as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken... By them I will be held in honor. You put God first. You humble yourself in this way and you worship and honor God first. And the people of God will treasure that because they'll see your heart. The religious people, which is what this thinking is, will look down their nose at you and say you're not acting in a godly manner. Because the, oh, the religious people have brought into their thinking the system of the world. I never saw this before. The religious people are operating under the value system and the way of thinking of the world and cannot understand. She could not understand David, why he was doing this. So she interprets what he's doing through her own heart, through her own motives, through her own understanding. And to her, I believe she was sincere. To her, it's shameful the way he acted. He disgraced the throne of Israel he disgraced the office of a king. But in his eyes, he was honoring the king that gave him that throne. She operated under the world's way of thinking, which is what religious people do. It's the world's value system, and this doesn't line up with it, so they get mad at it. They look down their nose at it. I want to talk for a minute. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because we saw Jesus said in the kingdom of God, if you, want to be if you want to be first, if you want to be what, if you want to enter in and you want to be what's the more valuable in God's eyes, not loves more, but treasures more, then you've got to become like a child. But there's a difference between being like a child and being childish. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. 
Paul writes, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Then what's the difference between being childlike and childish? Last night we had a great example of being childlike because we had children performing on the stage. And the younger ones were not conscious of how sophisticated they were. <laughs> they were not worried about how professional they looked. It was interesting to look at them as you looked at the ages as they got higher in age. They were being more and more sophisticated in the sense we're talking about more and more trying to do things in the way that appeared in a, in a good way. Those the younger kids, they didn't care. They just had fun. And you know what? In, you know what got the most attention? You know what the people loved the most? Was the little kids. Now, at some point they got childish, but the childlikeness is they were uninhibited. They weren't concerned with, you know, do I do the right thing? I'm talking about the real young ones. They were little sheep and things crawling all over the stage and all like that. And they weren't concerned with how sophisticated we thought they were. Oh, but do you know what the neat thing is? They'd see mommy or daddy and they'd go. <laughs> they were conscious of their mother and their father. Not how they appeared to everybody. And in the kingdom of God, he wants us so in love with him so lost in who he is, so enthralled and so enamored and so over in awe of who he is that we forget who we are. Because your identity truly is in him. So childishness, childishness is when we become is selfishness. Now that's my toy. Childishness is really a small person operating under these rules. Childishness is in the way we talk sometimes. Baby talk. Childishness is not child-likeness. I want to go on and give you a second one. At least introduce it. Because there's there a number of other ones I want to get into. All right. This is a third principle we're looking at. This is how the world thinks. This is how we were ingrained. By now, if you've been alive very long, you've understand that things don't always go the way you want them to. Have, have it, some of you found that out? <laughs> that things don't always go just the way you want them and the way you planned and the way you had it figured out. And the question is, how do we react to that? Society has this rule or attitude that when things don't go wrong, right, we have every right to complain. We have every right to get upset. We have every right, in fact, as a child, to pout. Isn't that what a child does when things don't go their way? There are different ways of pouting, but it's pouting. We've just learned more sophisticated ways of pouting. Because, again, we're concerned. See, a child goes like this. They, we know they look foolish, but they don't know they look foolish because they're not concerned with how they look. We're older, so we found more sophisticated ways of... Because we can't come into church like this because we'd be looking childlike, childish. 
And yet inside, our motive is just that. It's called feeling sorry for ourselves. But we have every right to. I mean, and we, and we talk to each other that way. Wow, what you've been going through, Joe. My goodness, I don't know how you've stood up as long as you have. What you've been going through. I don't know how you've done it. Oh, my, I went through something like that. You know, we start sharing these testimonies and we start, you know, and what we're really doing is complaining. We've forgotten that everything we have, our life, our breath, every beat of our heart is a gift from our Creator and our Father. But you see, as we lose sight of those things, the long trip here, we become, we think we're entitled. It's a word that's used very much today. We think we're entitled to certain things and when we don't get what we think we're entitled to, we get upset. We get disappointed, we get angry, we get frustrated because we're not getting what we think we're entitled to. But what we think we're entitled to in most cases is coming from this system of rules that the world operates by. Where is it written we're entitled to those things? Where is it written we're entitled to anything except spending an eternity burning in hell? That's what, from God's perspective, apart from Christ, that's what you're entitled to. I don't want what I'm entitled to. And when we think we're entitled to things other than that, it's because we're operating under the rules that the world operates under. So the sign of this is complaining, whining. The sign of this is, is feeling sorry for ourselves. The sign of this is, 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 is anger and frustration. That's the sign because we're not getting what we think we're entitled to then what is God's rules? Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I mean, the, rule, the world understands when things are bad and things are tough, it's normal to complain and to feel sorry for yourself. In fact, it's not hard to gather a party together of people feeling sorry for ourselves because all of us have something that's not going the way we want it to go, so we gather around other people that, that are complaining and we form a fellowship group out of that <laughs> and we commune together over the fact that yeah you're going through something yeah I'm going through something too and we feel sorry for each other but really we're feeling sorry for ourselves, and we're letting them reinforce why we have a right to feel sorry for ourselves because you're feeling sorry for yourself so I'm right to, entitled to feel sorry for myself that's the world system and if we operate in that we want to operate in the world's rules and expect God to get us out of it. Can you see the ridiculousness of that? We're operating by the world's system. Oh, remember last week we, we discovered who perverted it? And what his only goal is? John 10.10, 10, steal, kill, and destroy. So when I operate by his rules, the only thing I'm going to result, it's going to result in is something's going to be stolen from me, some part of my life is going to be killed, or something in me is going to be destroyed. 
Because that's where these rules end because that's the motive of the author, well, the perverter of these other rules. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Is in here this morning. There we go. Now, these are things that, you know, we read and go, yes, that's right, yes, that's right. But I want you to read them. These are rules. This is a principle by which the kingdom of God operates. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Now, let's think for a minute about what always includes. People get frustrated with me because I'll take one word and just spend the whole day on the word. But this is how I learn things. What, is, what, is, what does always mean? In all your ways, right, always. It means all the time. That means when I first get up in the morning, no matter how I feel, you'll notice in these verses there's a word missing. It's the word feeling. Like you don't find that a whole lot in the Bible. Rejoice always includes when I first get up in the morning. It includes when I nick myself shaving. It includes if my wife didn't fix the breakfast I thought she ought to fix me, which isn't what happened, but I mean. It includes, it, it include, it includes if I, the car doesn't start. It incl- always, always means at all times. And what does it say the rule of the kingdom of God is that we're to operate by? What are we to do? Rejoice. Yeah, but pastor, you don't know what's going on in my life. But he did when he set up the rules. Now, see, you've got, what's, you've got your understanding of it and you've got God's understanding of it. Amen. How well has your understanding been working? I mean, you've been operating by your understanding and your rules. How well has it been working? If it's working great, then you go, go and do it. But if it's not been working great, good. I, I would suggest you consider maybe turning like a child. And try God's rules out for a while. See how they work. Because they're guaranteed. They're guaranteed. Some guarantees are for a lifetime. This is a guarantee for an eternal lifetime. Rejoice always. Not talking about what you're going through. He's talking about when we're to rejoice. Pray without ceasing. In everything. Notice it doesn't say for everything. In everything. That's another one of those universal words. Always. Everything. See, we like some of those. My God shall supply all my needs. I like, we like that all. But we don't like these alls. But I have learned one of the principles of the kingdom of God is it's not, it's not a buffet where you can pick some alls that you want and leave the other alls there. Because the problem in your brain is all only means one thing. So if the way you talk and the attitude is, all means what I pick or choose, then your brain knows all doesn't mean all. 
So when you say, well, yeah, rejoice in all, in all things, rejoice, but I know it really doesn't mean that. When it comes over to see my God so supply all your riches and glory, your brain waters that down also. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're praying, God, what's your will for my life? Here it is. Start with this. Well, how can I give thanks? Well, are you breathing? Have your sins been forgiven? You start looking for things to be thankful for, it's incredible what you'll find because your attitude begins to change and you start looking at what God's done. You start looking at Him and not the problems. See, in this kingdom, He's king. Over here, in this kingdom, the problems are king. You're king. And really, it's the devil that's king. So Satan, again, his goal is to keep you from looking at God because God's your way out. God's your answer. God's your provision. He doesn't want you to look at him. He wants you to look at yourself the same way he did with Eve in the garden and Adam in the garden. Nothing new. James chapter 1. Talking about rules of the kingdom of God that are opposite of what the world operates in. Verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That word means a testing, a trial, a difficult time when things aren't going the way you think they should. Count it all joy. Now that's your question. I'm just picking something as an example. And, and, but you can translate it into whatever would mean something to you. If you are, let's say you're a Patriots fan. And the team has just come from behind and beaten whoever, the Texans, okay. <clears throat> They've come from behind and Brady just threw a 35-yard touchdown pass to Wes Welker, and the clock expires, and they've won the game. And you're an avid Patriots fan. Does anybody have to tell you to count it? All joy. You look around the room and see, oh, I think we're supposed to be joyful about this. Yes! No, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to count anything. It comes out of you because it's what you wanted. Amen. So the only time you've got to count it something is when that's not your ingrained reaction. See, in this world, when things go right, it's easy to praise God because that's the system the world operates under. Everything's going right. We're happy. We're joyful. But see, when we're doing that, we're no different than the world because that's the world operates under that system. When things don't go right, when things are falling apart, when, when we're in a test and a trial, the kingdom of God's rule says, count it. Count means I don't feel like it. Count means there's nothing I can see to base on it. Count it all joy. Why God? Well, God doesn't have to tell us why. In case we forget, His job description is He's God. But He does tell us why. My brother, 
Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That means more than one. They're piled up. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces steadfastness. Oh, that's another principle in the kingdom of God. And steadfastness will produce fruit in your life. Look at this. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, and let patience or endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's what happens. The kingdom of God operates this way. You're going through a trial. You're going through pressure. God's rules say, count it all joy. Because if you don't quit, if you continue to do the things the way God says to do them, it will produce things in you. First of all, it will produce in you a steadfastness. I'm not moved by what's going on around me. I am steadfast. Because when you're steadfast, then God can work in you. And He can begin to complete you and perfect you. Because as you stand still long enough, He can do His work in you. But under the rules over here, we're so looking at what's going on. This isn't working. That's not working. So we're running around trying to put out fires. We're running around reacting to what's going on. We're not steadfast. We're not still. So God can't do a work in us because we're reacting to everything that comes along. God's trying to do a work in you. He's trying to produce fruit in you. He's trying to produce grace and strength and peace in you. But he can't do it because you don't stand still long enough. We react to what's going on. Remember the one who wants you to react. The one who's trained you to be moved by what you see, to be moved by the circumstances. The one who's trained you in that, his goal is only to steal, kill, and destroy. The God who's told you to count it all joy, his goal is to give you life and life more abundantly. But he can't give you the full experience of that life if you're reacting and operating under these principles. So you may not feel joyful. You may be in pain. You may be in suffering. But if you count it all joy, what will happen is that joy will help you to stand still and not panic and react because the joy gets you looking at Him. And when you start begin to experience that joy, now you have the strength to stand still and God can finish His work in you. So these principles are not just some religious doctrine. These principles are literally principles like gravity works, but gravity works to your benefit. These principles are by God to work to your benefit. But we've got to understand it takes work to operate in those because we've been ingrained to think the other way. So what we've got to begin to do is go through this process of renewing our minds to begin to think according to the principles of the kingdom of God and not any longer according to the principles of this world. Whew, let's pray. You're so good. Your word is so rich. Your love is boundless and endless. Father, we love you. We stand in awe of your love and commitment to us. 
that you continue to work in our lives to the extent we let you. But oh, how much more you want to do. How much more you want to accomplish in our lives that up until now we've robbed you of the pleasure of because we do things the way we were trained. Father, as we begin to learn what your kingdom operates under, in the days ahead, we ask the precious Holy Spirit who's deposited truths in our heart today to bring them back to our remembrance so that in the situations of life that we will run into, the disappointments of life that we may face, the, the, the temptation to be so sophisticated and worry about what people think of us. In those situations, Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to bring back to our remembrance what you've shown us today of your principles, that we might begin to operate by your principles and as we begin to taste the fruit of them, we'll commit more and more to thinking and talking and acting your way. Thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.